Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 8th episode of season 11. Before we get into it, as always, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know? You can't see it, but humans actually glow with our own form of bioluminescence. The intensity of the light emitted by the body is a thousand times lower than the sensitivity of our naked eyes. Essentially, we glow in the dark, but we can't see it. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. The body is so easily damaged, so easily disposed of. Water and chemicals is all it is. Hardly more to it than a jellyfish drying on sand. That was said by Margaret Atwood. Listener Alison Rothwell requested this case via messenger. We're in the village of Apley Bridge this week, located in the ceremonial county of Greater Manchester in northwest England. For reference, the village is six miles northwest of Wigan, 30 miles west and slightly north of the city of Manchester, and 209 miles northwest of London. Here are five quickfire facts about Apley Bridge. Number one. Apley Bridge used to be a thriving industrial village with a paint and linoleum works, several quarries and clay pits for the Wigan Brick Company. Number two, on a seemingly unassuming road named Skull House Lane sits a cottage called Skull House. The road was named after it. The cottage is so named after a discoloured human female skull that resides within its walls. Legend has it that if you try to remove the skull from the cottage, you'll be cursed and be met with a serious illness or even death. Number three, on October 13th, 1914, a tiny fragment of space rock crashed to earth in Apley Bridge. The rare amphotorite hit the village at around 150 miles an hour and was part of a 33-pound, 4.5-billion-year-old meteorite in the rare LL6 category. LL stands for Low Total Iron, Low Metal. I don't know what the six means. Number four, 
On August 22nd, 1987, parts of Apley Bridge were severely affected by flooding. Most residents of the Millbank Estate, the worst affected area, spent the next few months in caravans parked in their front gardens whilst repairs were carried out. And number five, Apley in Apley Bridge comes from Apple Lee, Apple Apple or Apple Eye, found in the 13th century Chartulery of Cockersand Abbey. What's the odds I'm saying Chartulery wrong? The approximate population of Apley Bridge, according to the 2001 census, is 18,500. Our story begins this week with the introduction of Louise Sellers, a 15-year-old girl who lived with her family at Chisacre Drive, about halfway between the middle of Apley Bridge and the nearby village of Shevington. The eldest of three siblings, Louise had a younger brother, 10-year-old Lee, and a little sister, 2-year-old Lauren. Elaine, the kid's mum, lived at the property with her partner Gary, who was Louise's adopted father. I'm uncertain as to whether Gary was the father of the other two children, but it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. He was there for all three of the kids regardless, and the family of five had an incredibly happy home life as far as I can tell. Louise had recently transferred to nearby Shevington High School from another secondary school, the reason why is unknown, but she fit in straight away with the other pupils. The confident and bubbly teenager was extremely popular and had many friends who adored her greatly. It was her charisma, ability to make others laugh, and overall kind nature that set her apart from the rest. Sure, she'd get into trouble from time to time, what teenager doesn't? but it was never the kind of trouble that would leave a lasting impact. Elaine mentioned her beloved Lulu's cheeky side in an interview she did for Crime Watch, and she had a smirk on her face as she said it, a smirk I'm positive all parents have worn on at least a dozen occasions. Her younger siblings looked up to her with admiration, and when I read that little Lauren used to call her Wheeze, my heart absolutely melted. Given the volume of close friends she had, it wasn't unusual for Louise to be seen out and about in the village, especially on weekends. She would often travel as far south as Billinge, a village seven miles south of her home, close to the Merseyside town of St Helens. Billinge comes up again later in the story, so it's worth making a mental note of the place name. In the immediate aftermath of the events I'm about to come on to, several of Louise's friends paid her family a visit to comfort and console them, and it was whilst there that they explained to local journalists how highly they regarded their friend. She was a fun-loving girl who you'd rarely see without a smile on her face and a laugh in her belly. The last person you'd consider to have an enemy would be Louise Sellers. She didn't have a malicious bone in her body, and to top it all off, she was incredibly intelligent. Her predicted exam results were all A stars, which nowadays would be the equivalent of a grade 8 or 9, I believe. Despite her young age, Louise was switched on enough to have her whole life and career planned out. Becoming a PE teacher was her dream, and she was striving to achieve it. An athletic and, at times, highly competitive individual, Louise won countless rosettes at Jim Carner events, and often bossed sprinting events on her school sports days. Jim Carner, you'll remember, is an equestrian event consisting of speed pattern racing and timed games for horse riders. I discussed it briefly in episode 2 of this season when I covered the murder of 14-year-old Gillian Atkins. It never ceases to amaze me how similar some of the cases I cover are. It's devastating. Like Gillian, Louise was a huge lover of horses. 
when she wasn't spending her free time with her mates, she'd be at the stables at Airfield Farm in the nearby village of Roby Mill, located two miles south of her home. The impression I got from the reports I read was that Louise did own a horse called TK at one point, but she sold it. TK and Elaine's horse Jara were kept at that farm's stables. Horse riding wasn't Louise's only passion though. She loved music, especially when it came to going out dancing with her mates on a Friday night. She was a bright girl who was becoming a beautiful young woman. She had the world at her feet. It was her oyster, but she would not have the chance to live the life she'd dreamed of for years. Because of the actions of someone else, her life was needlessly cut short in the most horrific fashion. The main timeline of this story began on Sunday, August 13th, 1995. With it being a school night, it wasn't common for Louise to want to go out and meet her friends, but that evening she appears to have felt compelled to meet her close friend, Kelly Morrissey, because she had some gossip to share with her. Asking her mum to borrow a small bit of chain so she could grab a drink whilst out, Louise said her goodbyes to Elaine and Gary and headed to The Late Shop, a nearby newsagent in Shevington, where she met Kelly at around half past six. The pair then appeared to walk around the village and put the world to rights, as it were, before eventually parting ways at around 9.15. Louise and Kelly were sitting in a bush shelter on Randall's Corner when a third-party male drove up to them in his car and mentioned going somewhere else, possibly to a party. Kelly was up for it and got in the car, but Louise couldn't be persuaded. She instead advised her friend that she'd be heading home on foot and watch them drive away. Ten minutes after parting ways, Louise stopped off at her friend Michelle's house for a brief chat, during which she told her that a random man had pulled up to her at the bus stop in his car and asked if she needed a lift somewhere. When Louise declined, she claimed the man told her to get lost and called her a slag before speeding away. The next sighting of Louise that night was at half nine, so five or so minutes after she'd finished speaking to Michelle. That witness said she was heading in the opposite direction of Chisacre Drive as she walked alone along Miles Lane. She appeared to be heading back towards Randall's Corner. Within five minutes of that confirmed sighting, another witness said they saw someone who they believed to be Louise standing at a bus stop, likely the same one she was at early with Kelly, chatting to two men who were sitting inside a white Ford Escort. The conversation didn't look tense or in any way heated, which indicates that Louise likely knew at least one of the two men. Moments later, a second sighting of a white Ford Escort was noted by some youths walking along what could only have been Miles Lane. They noted how obnoxious the driver must be as his driving was beyond reckless. A third sighting of a white Ford Escort, this time described as having a spoiler or wing on the back, was made by a couple of young girls who were out roller skating on Miles Lane. They waved at the driver and got a bit of a description of him. They said he was in his early 20s with facial stubble, he wore a blue baseball cap with a red peak and had a black No Fear branded t-shirt on. In all likelihood, the three separate sightings of a white Ford Escort were of the same vehicle and it's likely that Louise was in the car, but the police were unable to confirm it was the same car during that initial investigation. Gary and Elaine became concerned when Louise didn't return home by 11pm. It was rare that she'd stay out past half past ten, and if she was ever going to be late, she'd usually be responsible enough to give them a call and let them know so they wouldn't worry. The minutes continued to tick by with no sign of Louise returning home, and no phone calls were received. 
Elaine instead opted to pick up the phone and rang around Louisa's close friends to ask if they'd seen her. When she eventually spoke to Kelly's mum, she was informed that she and Louise had gone their separate ways at around 9.15 and as far as Kelly knew, Louise was at home. Gary headed out with a torch in an attempt to find Louise by calling out for her as Elaine phoned the police and informed the officers about what had happened when they arrived a short time later. It wasn't too long after midnight that a police helicopter was deployed as the efforts to help find Louise were drastically increased. Despite their best efforts in those early hours of August 14th, the officers could not find any trace of the teenager. Within a few hours, that would all change. Former police officer Keith Wilkes was enjoying his retirement and had headed out for his usual morning dog walk. As he strolled through the woods behind what used to be Billinge Hospital, five miles south of Chisacre Drive, Keith spotted the motionless body of a young girl. He informed the emergency services as quickly as possible and they arrived on the scene shortly after. No attempt had been made to conceal Louise's body, which meant it had been open to the elements for a good few hours. It was clear that Louise had been murdered, with strangulation being suspected as her cause of death. She had a long piece of blue nylon rope wrapped around her neck and she had significant head injuries. The true extent of those injuries was revealed after a post-mortem examination occurred. The pathologist who conducted the post-mortem explained that Louise had suffered injuries to a degree that he had not seen before in his career. Her jaw had been broken, as had her breastbone and several of her ribs. The disturbing theory was that she'd been violently kicked or stamped on multiple times. Whoever killed Louise had subjected her to a beating so savage that the police did not want either Gary or Elaine to see her. Instead, Louise was identified by her personal belongings. It appeared as though she had done her utmost to ward off her attacker, as evidenced by her defensive wounds, but she was also well-versed in self-defence, so there was definitely a struggle. A lot of blood was shed, with some of it having to have come from a killer. Louise's hairband had come out during the onslaught and she was covered in scrapes and grazes which the pathologist suggested could have been caused by a sharp object such as a ring on someone's finger. One other point to know is that Louise was found fully dressed. There was no indication that she had been sexually assaulted. Therefore, the attack didn't appear to be sexually motivated. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. In the surrounding area, close to where Louise was found, several items were taken in as evidence, including a cassette tape with the words Goon May 93 on the front and Vertigo on the back. A cassette case was also found titled Tenerife Holiday, which was soon confirmed to have been made on the largest of the Canary Islands, but neither that nor the tape belonged to Louise. Police appealed to the public and directly to the owner of those items to come forward, but nobody did. Other evidence included tyre marks found at the scene, no surprises there when I tell you they belonged to a Ford Escort, and, crucially, a discarded cigarette butt found four yards away from Louise's body. Sadly, the lack of sufficient DNA technology at the time meant nobody was brought to justice. The cigarette butt was initially examined, but a test revealed insufficient DNA to conduct a successful analysis. Terry Fidden, a local farmer, said that whoever was responsible for killing Louise must have been someone who knew the area well. They must be a member of the community because you can't see the spot where Louise was dumped from a main road. 
Only the knowledge of a local would lead to such a deposition site being chosen. The murder inquiry was led by Detective Superintendent Peter Mockett. Here's what I had to say in the early stages of the investigation. This was the horrific murder of a 15-year-old girl. We do not have a motive. We don't know how she finished up in this locality. These are all matters that we will have to consider. I am appealing for information from any member of the public, particularly anyone who saw anything unusual overnight. Louise's friends were subjected to police questioning as they attempted to build a profile on her and better understand her regular movements. It was a particularly unsettling time for them. One friend called Christopher said he was interviewed on four separate occasions. He was asked about Louise's personality, what her traits were, when he'd last seen her and what his whereabouts were on the night of her murder. The one common thing all Louise's friends and family said was that she would not get into a car with a stranger in a million years. She wouldn't even get in if she only kind of knew the person, which once more pointed towards her killer being someone she knew. Had someone attempted to take her with force, her aforementioned self-defence training would have, in theory, prevented such an occurrence. Everything was pointing towards Louise being in the company of a friend who then began assaulting her when she was least expecting it. Using that theory, the police soon settled their sights on a 21-year-old called Darren Ashurst, a local man working as a lorry driver at a quarry. Louise and Ashurst knew each other well, with the pair often going for drives together. According to one source, they even had a brief relationship, but it was only short-lived after Louise met someone else. He lived about a mile away from Louise's family and worked at East Quarry in the village. Knowing the outcome of this story, it's amazing how close the police came to catching their man at the time of that initial investigation. Due to his close relationship with Louise, Ashurst was questioned at length after being arrested despite him persistently denying knowing anything about her murder and claiming to have not been the person responsible for it. The most significant link at that time was the fact that Ashurst drove a white Ford Focus RS Turbo with a spoiler. The continued questioning led to Ashurst admitting that he had changed the appearance of his car dramatically since he first became a suspect. He not only removed the lining from the car's boot or trunk, but he also removed some identifying stickers from it. On the evening in question, Ashurst had opted to thoroughly clean his car at 10.53pm at Shevington Moore's Crow Orchard Garage. To be fair, he was in the habit of regularly washing his beloved car, but that seemed like too much of a coincidence to ignore. Ashurst also confessed to having had two showers on the evening of August 13th, once after finishing work and another much later on. The story he was sticking with was that he had first dropped his girlfriend off at her babysitting job before heading to the town of Bolton, 16 miles away from where Louise was found, to source the services of a sex worker. He said he was ultimately too bashful and bottled it, returning home after not stopping and talking to anyone. From what I could make out, Ashurst's DNA was taken at the time. Remember that 1995 was the year in which the National DNA Database was introduced, but there was still not enough evidence to charge him with anything. That was despite the tyre marks at the scene where Louise was found matching those of his own Ford Escort. Nothing could connect Ashurst or his car to Louise, so unfortunately he was released as a free man. I mentioned Crime Watch earlier regarding an interview Elaine did for it. 
The episode featuring Louisa's case aired on October 3rd, 1995, and it's available to watch on YouTube. I highly recommend you go and watch it. The link is in my references for this episode, which can be found at britishmurders.com forward slash Louise Sellers. Three long months passed before Louisa's body was released back to Gary and Elaine so that they could arrange her funeral. The event celebrated the popular teenager's life, with all her friends and family attending. Each of them brought a sentimental item to be placed inside Louisa's coffin, including letters, pictures, and a fluffy plush St. Bernard dog which one of her male friends won for her in Blackpool. The celebration of her life went long into the night, with the soundtrack consisting of Louisa's most loved songs. As far as the murder investigation goes, it went cold for three years, but a new piece of evidence was brought to the police's attention in the interim. Fourteen months after Louise's body was found, a strapless watch was handed in. An elderly couple had found it a few days after Louise's murder whilst on a picnic, as it had somehow been missed during police searches. The couple's nephew informed them that it might be of interest to the police when he learned when they'd found it. They had no idea of its potential significance, and before long, the watch was confirmed as having belonged to one of Ashurst's female friends. She explained how it had suddenly gone missing around the time of the murder, likely indicating that Ashurst had stolen it and either dumped it or dropped it where the elderly couple then found it. On August 14th, 1998, the three-year anniversary of Louise's body being found, the case was reopened by Wigan's new CID boss, Detective Superintendent Ian Seabridge. Advances in DNA technology were astonishing compared with what was available in 1995, so a fresh team was assigned to the case to work with their brand new high-level computer tech. It wasn't just tech though. Witnesses who were too young and perhaps scared to come forward at the time of the murder were now being more forthcoming. Two male witnesses came forward and explained that Ashurst had asked them to provide him with an alibi on the night of the murder, with one of the two also being asked to give him the name of a reputable car thief. Tips on how to successfully torch a car were also requested of the two men by Ashurst. If we look back at the blue nylon rope that was discovered tied four times around Louisa's neck, that was the property of Joan Seddon, a neighbour of Gail Hyatt, an ex-girlfriend of Ashurst. Joan, who'd knitted the rope for her daughters to skip with, gave it to Gail, who gave it to Ashurst after he told her his car had broken down. The rope never found its way back to either Gail or Joan. If the net wasn't closing in enough already on the now 26-year-old Ashurst, new evidence came to light which revealed he had attended a wedding the day before Louise was murdered. In the event's video, he can be seen wearing brogue shoes, which were thought to have an incredibly similar tread print to some recovered from the crime scene. Naturally, Ashurst had long since disposed of the brogues before any searches were conducted. By the summer of 1999, police were still searching for their golden nugget. Further advances in DNA technology led to something known as a second generation multiplex plus or SGM plus test taking place. I won't go into the intricacies of such a test as it's beyond confusing, maybe that says more about me, but it essentially allows old samples such as blood, saliva and semen to be examined for a possible DNA profile. As the police kept some vital pieces of evidence under wraps and continued to offer a 20k reward for information, around 36.6k in today's money, 
something else was discovered in a field which helped confirm where Louise had been attacked. Tiny white fragments were recovered on the back of a painstaking search, with them soon being identified as being part of a tooth. Louise had chipped one of her teeth during the struggle, so recovering said fragment proved that she was attacked roughly 50 feet away from where her body was found. That August, detectives issued questionnaires to 500 homes in Billinge in a last-ditch attempt to source new information. They placed a mobile police unit outside a pub on Upholland Road on the weekend of Saturday 14th and Sunday 15th, with another spanner in the works being thrown when a red rose was discovered at the deposition site on the fourth anniversary of Louisa's murder. Each year, a red rose was placed at the spot where Louisa's body was found, and from what I could make out, it was typically left by a friend or family member. This time, however, the police were informed that nobody knew who had left the rose. Had the killer left it there? If he had, then it was also him who left a card next to it which read, Louise, for the smiling girl who saved my life, I could not thank you then, I do so now. Another message on the back of the card read, May all God's angels line up to walk in your footsteps. The signature was indecipherable, but it started with the letter K. It wasn't the first time a mystery person had left a tribute to Louise. In February 1996, most likely around Valentine's Day, one would imagine, some flowers were left at her grave. Again, they were not left by a friend or family member. Finally, on January 26, 2000, Ashurst was re-arrested on suspicion of murder. This time, the police essentially had him banged to rights. The cigarette butt had been re-examined with new technology, and the DNA profile recovered from saliva on it was said to have a 1 in 83 million chance of not belonging to Ashurst. It's believed that Louise was approached by Ashurst on August 13th, 1995, as she walked home, and she voluntarily entered his car, as she'd done so many times before. He then drove her to an isolated wheat field and propositioned her. When she rejected him, he became infuriated and killed her. Such was his arrogant belief that he would not be caught that he continued to live in the property a mile away from Louise's parents. They probably bumped into him all the time, not knowing that he was the person responsible for killing their beloved daughter. The two-week-long trial began at Manchester Crown Court in mid-October 2000 and concluded on November 1st. Mrs Justice Rafferty oversaw the proceedings and handed Ashurst a life sentence after the jury of nine men and three women found him guilty of murder by way of a 10-2 majority verdict. The aftermath of this case is a tragedy in and of itself. Elaine and Gary went on to separate once the murder trial had concluded. Gary developed several psychiatric problems as a direct result of the trauma of Louise's murder and the subsequent delay in getting justice. Elaine said of her ex-husband, My successful partner of 20 years became a shell of his former self, taking drink and prescription drugs as his only comfort, which ultimately led to our divorce and his ultimate destruction by taking his own life. Louise's younger brother Lee suddenly went from being a bubbly, fun-loving extrovert to a child who was introverted, sullen and wanting to fight the world. Young Lauren grew up with a constant barrage of press in her life and was forever asking where her big sister Wheeze was. In November 2017, Elaine said, 
Over the last few weeks, I have learned that the monster Darren Ashurst, who took Louisa's life, has been moved to an open prison because of his exemplary behaviour. This is the first step for him to being released back into our community. I received a letter yesterday to say he has made an application for parole and he's been granted an escorted town visit this month. I knew at some point I would have to face this. Elaine's fears would then come true three years later. Ashurst is now a free man. He was released from prison in 2020. And that was the story of the murder of Louise Sellers. Thanks again, Alison Rothwell, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's four new reviews are as follows. Richard H. left two five-star reviews on BritishMurders.com, which I've amalgamated. They read, I absolutely think this is by far the best true crime podcast I've ever listened to. I usually hate interview episodes, but the way you do them makes me listen to them. You have a great technique. I think the latest episode I listened to your two parts of Fred and Rose West was very well done, very informative and accurate. I stumbled upon this podcast by mistake, but it's the best mistake I have made. I've been listening for just over a month and about to start season nine. Keep up the good work. Can't wait to start the next season. I'm off to murder a ball of Cheerio. Kaz left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Love listening to British murders while I'm at work and when it's a particularly interesting account, I have to do a wee replay when I'm at home. Stuart's accent, his no-nonsense appraisal of the facts and the concise storytelling make this an absolute favourite of mine. Also, the occasional and totally valid use of the word bollocks is always a joy to behold. Susan Mosgrove left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, Stumbled across your podcast by accident and I've been binge-listening ever since. Nearly caught up now. Not one to listen to podcasts, but yours has captivated me. I find it interesting and captivating and not too long. Your voice is soothing in a strange kind of way, considering the topic of your stories. Keep doing what you're doing and I'll keep listening. P.S. Any chance you could cover the bubble and squeak murder, the murder of David Jackson? A cut and dry case, but wow, what an interesting story. It certainly is, Susan. I actually told Bobby Holmes and her listeners that story on her podcast, Killer Stories. It aired in January 2022, and it's called Killer British Murder Stories, Volume 4. Go check it out. Finally, Avril Field-Taylor left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I remember many of the murders on these podcasts, having an interest in crime going back 60 years. I find the research for the programs impeccable and the presentation engaging. I recently interviewed Avril, or April as she's known professionally, so watch out for that upcoming episode. Thank you Richard, Kaz, Susan and Avril for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to Patreon.com slash BritishMurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my Officer of the British Empire tier, you'll gain access to all future episodes, ad-free of course. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes, I've done 14 so far, as well as my new podcast series, British Murders Weekly Journal. I also do Patreon exclusive giveaways from time to time. Thank you, hello and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Jilly. If you'd prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but much like Alison did, you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. And that's it for another episode. 
I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.